Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to our class today. We have an exciting lineup of guests on the topic of code review and code assessment. And our first guest today is uh, Jorge Aranda, who is a senior software developer engineer at Workday. Uh, he works on the video intelligence team. And uh, he received his PhD in computer science from the University of Toronto in 2010. And he also did a postdoc at UVic. And he has uh, worked on applied research data science and machine learning projects in quite a variety of settings. And actually from his time at UVic, that's how I know him, but I also know of his work. And so welcome today, Jorge. It's great that you can spend time with us. And in preparation uh, for today, so you know that our course is on empirical software engineering. So we all uh, read your paper, The Secret Life of Bugs in preparation for today. And we're very excited to ask you some questions and hear your answers about that. Um, we also read your article that you co-authored with Greg Wilson uh, for Scientific American. And Greg actually visited our class a few weeks ago. I don't know if you know that. And uh, so we talked about that then. So your name is already famous in the class. Um, so to warm up a little bit, I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you came to do a PhD in computer science and what led you to do this study that you did at Microsoft. Sure. And hello, everybody again. Um, how did I end up doing a PhD in computer science? I wanted to do a master's only. I, I came out of undergrad with a computer systems engineering degree from Mexico. And I worked as a, an independent uh, freelance software developer um, doing custom work for local companies in my hometown uh, with friends from university and kind of became convinced that uh, the way we were doing things was not effective. Um, I was sure at the time that uh, academia would have some answers to productivity questions and process questions and stuff like that, that, that we had. Uh, and I, I wanted to do a master's to, uh, to learn better, you know, the state of the art of how to develop software. Uh, ended up in Toronto, uh, where pretty much the first week of courses, uh, one of my professors, um, Marsha Chichik, uh, said, oh, we don't have answers. <laughs> uh, so, um, Good luck with that. Um, but I, you know, I stayed for the masters. I, I discovered I liked doing research. I discovered that there was a lot of work to do in the area of empirical software engineering. Um, and you know, stayed for the PhD and loved it. As to how this research study came to be, um, conversations with people at Microsoft Research. Um, First, I, I had done a previous um, study at IBM. Um, IBM has a um, center of advanced sciences in uh, the outskirts of Toronto. So uh, I was interested in doing more work with large companies on how they coordinate and communicate to do software development. Um, and my goal when I pitched this study uh, to Gina Venolia, who was my uh, supervisor at Microsoft Research, was to do kind of like um, I was I was really fascinated by um, Hutchins's work on distributed cognition. Um, I don't know if if people here are familiar with it, um, but there's a book Cognition in the Wild, um, based mostly on a study on navigation. Uh, 
And I wanted to do something like that for um, feature development for software. So I wanted to, to take a number of features all the way from conception to um, deployment or delivery and maintenance and to document everything that anybody had to do about that feature, uh, what did they think about it, what, um, what was available to them, cognitively speaking, uh, socially, who do they need to coordinate with to get it done. And there's a reference to the pilot that we did for that, um, that version of the paper, um, I think close to the end of, of, of the paper that you read. Um, I tried to do that and it was overwhelming. It was for a, for a very simple feature that I took first as a pilot. It was a checkbox in a dialogue window for, uh, for Windows. Um, we uncovered hundreds of people that participated in it one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, hundreds, maybe a thousand pages of documentation, tests, um, performance tests, internationalization stuff. Uh, it was just huge. And I told Gina, I, we can't do this for, you know, 10 features. We need to scale down to maybe bugs. Um, and so that's how, that's how we ended up looking at bugs. Which was a small thing to look at, right? Yeah, well, it, even, <laughs> even bugs, some of the bugs did take weeks of development, but, uh, or uh, of research, but yeah, uh, it was at least an order of magnitude lower. Mm -hmm. So I, I always consider your paper one of my favorite uh, papers actually of all time from software engineering literature, uh, because it was just, it really kind of pushed us to think quite differently um, about the kinds of research that we were doing and what was going on behind the scenes that we might not ordinarily look at. Um, I'm gonna actually switch to the student questions because they have prepared quite a few questions. And for that, we uh, they posted them on Slack and we've sorted them and, and sort of grouped them a little bit by theme. And so I've mentioned to them uh, that uh, I'll call on them to ask their questions. If they don't appear quickly, I may jump in, um, but I'll go through and uh, ask, uh, ask them to join our conversation here. So Jonathan, uh, are you there with the first one? Um, so the first few questions I thought we'd ask kind of focus around the mind data um, that you looked at in your study. And so there were some questions about that. So is Jonathan with us today? Yeah, I'm here. Great, you wanna jump in? Uh, sure. Um, so my question was, uh, in your paper, you demonstrate that data obtainable through mining is often incomplete, inaccurate, or straight up wrong. In your opinion, do the results of your paper invalidate the results of the large portion of software engineering research that only considers mined data? So I would say invalidates is a very strong word. Uh, I wouldn't make that claim. Um, I think it does. So I think what the paper and the results do is um, maybe raise a flag that some of those results might need to be revised, um, that, that there may be some issues there that um, just focusing on electronic records that researchers could not see. Um, and I think that's, so um, I, I think most of the follow-up work that happened after this paper kind of made that assumption. Um, Gina, Vinoli, and I joked that we had written a, a threats to validity paper where we get cited a lot in the threats to validity section, <laughs> mostly along the lines of, um, uh, we know that electronic records don't, don't have the whole picture reference to our paper, uh, but in our case, we are confident that blah, 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 blah. 
And I think I think there needs to be more caution. Um, uh, but I wouldn't say that it invalidates everything for sure. Yeah, it's uh, an interest. I saw a tweet yesterday about somebody sort of claiming that um, you know system data is is much more reliable and gives you a lot more information than say survey data. And then there was a little bit of a backlash. I think a lot of people are aware that you know that. Uh, the, the mine data is not complete, um, but I, I find it intriguing that people reference you as a way of saying, yeah, so we, but we don't need to worry about it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, we've, we've heard that criticism. We're fine. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> doesn't apply to us. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Jonathan. So a little bit uh, follow on from that. Um, so in your study, so if Anthony's there, I'll ask Anthony to jump in. Um, in your study, you looked at large company, right? You looked at Microsoft. Uh, Anthony, did you want to jump in here? Uh, sure. So uh, in your research, you looked at uh, like large company like Microsoft. So my question is, do you think for smaller companies, uh, software repositories history would provide more valuable and accurate uh, information? Because uh, they might have less complex communication and uh, stronger accountability since they have uh, less people involved. Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, I would say no, I would say the opposite actually. I think large companies generate a lot more electronic traces because they need to, to coordinate. Um, I don't have a lot of evidence other than anecdotal evidence to base this on, but I worked for before my previous job, before my current job, I, I worked for six years at a small company. And let me tell you, the electronic records that we had in no way represented what was actually happening. Um, a small company, you know, these days it's difficult, uh, but in a small company, it's more common for, for people to uh, work in the same office and to discuss more things face-to-face -face as well. Um, maybe to use post-its instead of, um, instead of Jira tickets or something like that. So um, I would be skeptical that a small company has a more, a, a fuller representation of the coordination and communication that happened than, than a large one. Thank you. Right, thank you. So I guess a warning to us is that if we are doing studies with smaller companies that there's a need to e even more in that case to talk to people and find out what's going on. Um, so follow on from that, actually, Sarush, um, if you want to ask a little bit more about this and about the challenge of doing research. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so my question was that um, um, many papers that use trace data, their results might be inaccurate or uh, not really deep, according to uh, the results of like it needed lots of um, surveys and interviews with developers to actually understand what's going on. But um, what would other researchers do that don't have access to these resources and can easily go to these like big, big companies and or like other uh, like startups and investigate what's actually going on. And the main resource they have is trace data. And uh, what would they do if they wanted to have like a deep understanding of what's going on? Yeah, um, so if you have no choice, then you work with what you have, right? If all you have is electronic traces, uh, electronic records, then 
use those, that's fine. Uh, I would have no, no argument against that. It's like, um, I mentioned earlier that I, uh, I was looking at the paper and I also, Peggy found the slides. Uh, I, I'm not sure I have them. Uh, Peggy found the slides from, from the paper. I don't know if you saw them, but uh, they, I opened with a picture of a, a fossil of a dragonfly. Um, if that's all you have, if you're studying dinosaurs and all you have is their fossils, then by all means use the fossils, right? Um, but if you have living dragonflies that you have access to, then, then you're just um, locking yourself out of a, a lot richer data that you could have access to if, if you ask. So let's say that you try to study small companies and and you contact them and you contact a bunch of them and you're, you're, you know, you're, again, these days it's different, but you go to meetups and you try to establish connections with them and to say, hey, you know, I would love to study uh, you, the way you work. It's not going to be a lot of effort for you or you may gain something out of that. Nothing bites, right? You get no, no takers. Then fine, the electronic records is all you have and, and that's fine. But I think a lot of people make the jump straight to electronic records because it involves not talking to other people and we're introverts and um, without even trying to get that access in the first place. Thank you. I think that's a, that's a really good metaphor to use actually. I'm gonna remember that one, dragonfly and a fossil. Oh yeah, thanks uh, Sarush. Um, let's switch uh, topics here a little bit and maybe look at some of the questions that um, touch a little bit more on how to, you know, sort of improve the situation. Um, so some of the patterns that you exposed in your study. Um, so maybe Cassandra is uh, online and would like to start with her question about this. So in your paper, it's, you state that uh, search is another problematic er area in our cases. It often resulted in snowballing threads and uh, shotgun emails which sometimes succeed in finding the people or piece of knowledge necessary, but can be extremely inefficient if one considers the person hours needed by hundreds of email recipients to parse numerous messages that more often than not have no relevance for them. So I guess my question is, rather than improving this kind of search idea, do you think there's a way to avoid snowballing threads and shotgun emails? And if so, do you have an idea that could replace uh, so balling threads and shotgun emails. Yeah. Um, so this is one area where uh, I think the paper is, has aged uh, a little. Um, the tools that we have these days, quite different. I don't know. I mean, 12 years ago, email was king still. Um, and most software development coordination happened through email. Some of it happened through instant messaging. Some of it happened through code review tools uh, or repositories, but a lot of it, at least at Microsoft, was email. These days, I'm not sure what Microsoft is doing, um, uh, but most of the world has moved into Slack or its uh, its equivalents, right? So um, I've, I've worked, I started working at Workday um, in June last year, June, 2019. I've never seen a snowballing uh, email thread uh, in my time here. There's a lot of Slack activity happening, but if you're good at curating that, uh, you can avoid a lot of those, um, uh, not toxic, but like detrimental patterns that I've identified uh, in the past. 
So uh, to, to summarize, I think the tools are better for, for this these days. So do you, maybe I'll just ask a little follow on, do you, but do you still see, do you still find yourself sometimes at work seeing some of these patterns and going, oh, <laughs> there's an example of that. It's just a little different maybe, but yeah, do you see uh, new patterns coming out? Yeah, so I think this is an area where, um, to be honest, I lost track a little bit of the current state of the art of uh, uh, software engineering research. I don't know yeah. how much work there is in terms of Slack patterns, for instance. Yeah, but um, there's a lot of tailoring that we as developers do to manage that firehose of information, right? Channel curation: which channels am I subscribed to? Which channels have I do, do I subscribe to, but I have muted? Um, how do I uh, respond to, or do I get notifications for certain kinds of mentions for certain words? Um, I have some Slack message, some Slack channels where. Um, no message goes by that I don't pay attention to. They're all important. And some others that I'll just, you know, they're like interest groups where people post a question and, and some other experts in there provide some information. So I think there's a lot of um, um, new coordination patterns and communication patterns that these tools enable us to, to use. And I'm not sure how well researched they are at this point. Yeah, actually, I don't, I think there's still a lot of room there to look at some of these questions. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, one of the closing questions I was going to ask you was, did you have any ideas of future research studies? Because the students will be, for their second project, designing an empirical study or replicating an existing study. And I think you've just given some great ideas there, actually. You know, that could at, be one, yeah. uh, if, you're, if you're okay with one more. Yeah, um, go for it. So the, one of the things that struck me about the paper as well is that it was um, a study of software that's mostly developed and then released. Uh -huh. And I would say the majority of software these days is um, uh, cloud-based and, and the patterns are entirely different. There's a lot of interaction with operations people. Yeah. There's a lot of responding to incidents um, and, and trying to understand what's happening in real time and then providing fixes for that. So for instance, um, something that was never the case at Microsoft at, at the time that I'm aware of, um, Zoom bridges, right? Some incident happens and you get people from operations, people from the relevant teams, product management people, managers, converging on a Zoom channel to try to figure out what the issue is. It's a lot of staring at metrics, a lot of um, people providing ideas as to what the, the issue might be. So from, uh, distributed cognition perspective, that framework that I mentioned at the beginning, this is super rich in terms of the kinds of information and the kinds of um, things that happen to, to troubleshoot a problem. So I would love to read a paper on, on how that is done right now. That is a great idea. I think it's got maybe potential for a master's degree <laughs> in there for sure. I'll add a link also to Hutchins' book on distributed cognition to our webpage for today. Uh, thank you for mentioning that. The next question is looking a little bit more towards industry and maybe something that you've had recent experience on as working in industry. Uh, Jonathan Parks, are you, uh, are you on the call? Yeah. You want to jump in with your question? Okay, yeah. So um, in your, your paper, you talked about how uh, assignment of ownership is problematic in buggy code because you can't determine who's related to it 
or who owns it. Do you think having a tech lead as part of each small team would help kind of fill the gap left by the developers? Someone who can be like a single point of contact from teams outside of that team to kind of figure out something if they don't know, and then they can kind of figure it out in their own team and get back to them. Right. Uh, yes, having technical leads and points of contact helps. Um, it's been a long time, but I think Microsoft had something like that and, and they still have the problem. So the, the issue is not so much nominal ownership. Um, there's always somebody uh, uh, responsible for a Jira ticket, right? Or for a, 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 um, a bug ticket. There's always somebody in the assigned to column. Whether that person actually takes ownership of, uh, of the ticket, whether it belongs in their court, uh, that, that's a different matter. And that's something that has to be negotiated. And there's, there are several patterns to do that. Um, software teams may have triaging sessions where they look at incoming bugs and they say, who's going to take this one? Well, it could be team A because they worked on that more recently, but team B actually, their current scope, their current focus, like you, you, can, you can make an argument that it fits more with them. So how about we give it to team B? And team B doesn't complain, so team B gets it. So there's a lot of that happening in between those points of contact and, and team leads. Um, so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's as straightforward as just name somebody and that person will, will own it. Great, thank you. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, Nimi, um, would you like to ask the next question? Yes. Um, in your paper that you mentioned, like a bug can have an extended life. That means like a uh, developer might close the bug assuming it was already fixed, but in reality, it still exists in some way and it still have the effect. So you mentioned that missing information could be a reason in more uh, in recent in the industry that people are not recording information about the bug very well. So what are the, is there any additional, is there any tips that you like to provide when reporting a bug, maybe in electronic systems, maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah, so are there ways in which we can improve the like templates or improve the, the ticketing system in general so that we have better bug tracking? That's roughly the question, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't want to sound pessimistic. I don't think so. Um, people try. Um, we have some teams at work have, uh, if you want to log a ticket for them, you get a template and you know steps to reproduce, first observe, are customers affected, this or that. Um, and then somebody else figures out that there's a problem and they just put the very basic stuff that they can and just and just put it away. So for instance, we, we may get tickets from operations saying, um, you know, skipping steps to reproduce, acceptance criteria, all of that, and just, just one sentence and then you need to follow up with them or try to understand what they meant. So I guess what I'm trying to say is you can add process guardrails, but people find ways around them anyway a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Nimi. Um, I'm actually going to jump to Ansha's question because it sort of follows on quite nicely from that. So hopefully I'm not surprising Ansh too much. 
Are you there, Ansh? We'll come back to Zane's question and that'll probably be our last one. Hello. Um, <clears throat> so my question was, um, in, in regards to regression testing and the usage of continuous integration and continuous, uh, continuous development and features like Git Blame um, that help you figure out existing feature breaking bugs right away. In this case, wouldn't trace data help decipher what exactly broke existing features? Yeah, uh, for sure. Some and, and that's, I think that's one of the key benefits that these kinds of tools provide for developers. Um, so, a common pattern might be we're observing some issue in our non-prod environment. Uh, let's take a look at what, and production is fine. Let's take a look at what uh, non-prod has that production doesn't have. Oh, it's got these three PRs. Let's look at them. Okay, it's probably this one. Let's roll it back. Let's redeploy. So there's a lot of that happening. It's not foolproof. It may well be that it's something entirely different, but I would say that this is one of the main ways in which DevOps people troubleshoot what's going on by looking at Git blame or something like that. Uh, there was they weren't using Git in in this study. They were using uh, internal version control. I don't I don't even remember, but it uh, it, it wasn't Git. But it you know same same principles, right? Yeah. Thanks. Um, and maybe for the last question, thanks so much, Jorge, for answering all these questions. I think they're really interesting. Um, Zane, do you want to ask, I mean, uh, Jorge touched on this one already, but maybe you could focus a bit more on the work from home aspect. Yeah, um, I think uh, Jorge talked a little bit about it already, especially yeah. as a potential area for future, future research. But uh, I guess, uh, well, my original question was, um, so given the current world affairs, how do you think bug fixing has changed with respect to when the study was conducted? So 11, 12 years ago, um, as because instant messaging has, you know, like Slack, this type of tools have replaced a lot of emails. Uh, video conferencing is quite ubiquitous. So if you have any problems, you can just, you know, talk to that person through video conferencing. And uh, one of the uh, things found in the original paper was that drop by the office was you know, kind of a practice at the time. But obviously, in the current world affairs, that's no longer possible. So how do you think you know, this, this bug fixing thing has changed? Yeah, good question. Uh, drop, by, drop by your office still happens, but it's just you know, um, a direct message. Hey, I have a question for you. Do you have time right now or later? Sure, right now. And then you have a one-on-one -on, -one on Slack. Uh, yeah, or Zoom, and just troubleshoot that issue. Um, you don't have the face-to-face -face contact, which is always nice. Uh, there's uh, there's less richness to the communication. But um, uh, I would say actually maybe there is more familiarity with doing that over Zoom, and and so if you work with people around the world, it's just understood that that's the way you're going to do it, and everybody's used to it. So maybe that aspect of it has um, even improved um, over what you what, what we observed 12 years ago. Um, one thing that what you miss, uh, just to wrap up, is um, like the more ambiental information, the more uh, like you walk back to your desk and you see everybody in operations huddled around the monitor. OK, what's going on? There's, there's an issue there. You wouldn't figure that out otherwise or you go into the lunchroom and you hear about this other project and what they're doing and what the solution 
uh, that they're trying is, and okay, that gives you an idea for your own. So you lose a lot of that with, with what we have. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Jorge. Thanks, Zane. That was a great question. I mean, it's, it's really on our mind with work from home, how things are changing. Um, we had a visitor last week, uh, Evan Haber, who talked about studies of system administrators and how they solved these kind of problems and how it took so much kind of collaboration. And it's sort of interesting, I think, to imagine what's what's happening to replace that huddle, right? That huddle pattern that you talked about. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, Jorge, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy uh, work from home day today. And thank you. I, I really, uh, I love these questions. I, it, this looks like a great course. Um, thank you, Peggy, for inviting me. Uh, I hope your students understand how lucky they are to get, uh, except for me, such distinguished <laughs> guests into their, into their course. Um, I will have to run. Uh, I can't okay. stay for the rest of it, but I wish you very good luck. Thank you so much, Jorge. Thanks again for coming. Thank you. We'll, we'll clap a little bit before you go. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Bye, Jorge.